It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live! Woohoo! This week, starring special guest star Mr. Steve Barton! And we are going to talk about do you make these mistakes when composing instrumental cues? Because if you do, you're watching the right show. Anyway, hi, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great, Michael. How are you doing? <laughs> Good, thank you. That sounded very like you've been practicing that. I'm doing great. <laughs> anyway, great to have you back on the show. You're always a very popular guest. And uh, for background... Uh, oh, I thought I was a contestant. No, you could be. Uh, I think you'd win a lot of stuff. Um, which, by the way, I should mention, I will talk about this book later, but we are going to give away a copy of Steve's brand new book, Deconstructing Production Music for TV by Steve Barden. Um, and he is also, I, I can't, I'd be remiss without mentioning, Steve is the author of an extremely popular book with taxi members and, those, and other people who watch the show, writing production music for TV. And there's a subtitle, The Road to Success. And I bet that road's got a taxi on it. Um, Steve is... It leads to the Westin. There you go. <laughs> Steve is an accomplished composer, um, a great guitar player, an accomplished composer. He's been doing this for a while. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I mean, we became friends years ago. He's been a taxi member for a long time. And then uh, he came out with that book, and it just ratcheted every the first book it ratcheted everything up to another level it is the most comprehensive book on all aspects of production music it's not just about writing it it's about um, anything from like a glossary of terms that you need to understand to typical deals all kinds of information so if you are new to composing for television you really need to have this book and we will talk at some length about this one in a little bit. Um, we are, I asked Steve to make a list today of mistakes that he sees people making that he himself probably made in the early stages of his career um, when composing instrumental cues. And he did a great job of putting together some of this stuff, all this stuff, and also added some like businessy stuff that we'll get to on this list. And then once we go through this, then we're going to address, where did I put them? Um, oh, we're gonna go through questions that you guys submitted before the show, and if we're really lucky, maybe we will um, take some from the chat room as well. So there you go. So without any further ado, let's talk about, do you make these mistakes when composing instrumental cues? And uh, the first thing on the musical side is don't perform a musical instrument that you're not proficient at. Hire a professional. Um, can you elaborate on that? Uh, is like, how do you know when you're proficient enough and, or when you should hire a professional if you can't judge your own quality of playing? <laughs> you know, I, uh, I took up violin a few years ago and yeah. I, I really thought I would be able to, uh, you know, learn it well enough to be able to use it in cues. And I, and I did use it in a couple of uh, uh, bluesy guitar dobro things. Uh, I, I did have to do a lot of tuning uh, digitally, you know, to, to get it to sound right. Um, it probably would have been better had I hired somebody to do it, you know, somebody who actually plays the instrument. And, you know, I'm just not there yet. Um, Still waiting for those cues to get picked up. I wonder why. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> violin's pretty easy, right? You can generally learn how to play in like a week. Pretty much. You know, the fret <laughs> thing is, is so overrated. <laughs> um, you know, I've never asked you this question completely unrelated, but while we're on the topic of frets, I know that you're like a, an excellent guitar player. Um, what is your personal favorite guitar out of the several that you own, if not many? Well, I, I got to tell you, um, I hadn't bought a new guitar in about 20 years. I don't own a lot of guitars, but this year I've bought two guitars. And what I'm are gonna, they? I'm going to show you. So this this is this is the guitar. Ooh. Let's see where you're I'm doing there this you in go. the first year. There you go. Yeah. So this Les Paul, I've never owned a Les Paul. Uh, I've wanted one for 50 years, and I and I finally bought one. And then, I thought and you I had a black one. No, uh, it's a uh, it's a Gibson. It's an ES335. It's a semi hollow body. Uh, right. Uh, and I've used that for everything in my entire career. It's the guitar is 46 years old now, and it's uh, wow time to give it a little rest. Uh, but then I also I also picked up this guy. Nice. So, yeah. I love the color on that. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, how uh, do you like? I never owned a Telecaster. How do you like the the neck on? I have a hard time with Gibsons because I don't have a partic particularly strong left hand, and I find that you need a little more strength because Gibson fretboards are a little wider. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that? Uh... Sorry, I was... we got turns. <laughs> Uh, I was concerned um, because some of the necks on on some of the Gibsons are slightly different. Yeah, uh, some of them have more of a curve. Uh, this one seems to fit pretty well with um, both my jazz guitar, my ES one seventy five, and my three thirty five. Uh, so I was able to adapt to it pretty well. Um, the Telecaster is really easy to play. I, I I love it. I you know I was one of those guys that always thought the Telecaster was a country guitar, and mm -hmm. I had. You know, sadly, I, I had no idea that how versatile a guitar it is. Um, so I, I stand corrected. It's great. It's great well, I'm glad you're enjoying that, both of them, actually. Um, so how do people know? Because I'm sure they see it as an obstacle. Okay, yeah, I'm probably not the greatest guitar player, and this cue that I'm working on requires a certain amount of, of finesse on guitar. Uh, how do you cross that chasm of maybe I'm just not good enough and I should reach out and find somebody? When well, here's the thing. With, with production music, I think you don't have to be that great of a guitar player to to create production music cues because it's not about solos, really. Uh, you're not you're not highlighting the solo. It's it's really about setting a groove. You know, so even if it's just like a rhythm guitar piece with some riffs. Uh, you're not playing Eddie Van Halen solos or, or Jimi Hendrix solos. Um, so I think you can get away with being a, a subpar guitarist, really. <laughs> There's a ringing endorsement for subpar <laughs> guitarists. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sub-subpar. I'm I have like no rhythm in my right hand. So I, I would be that guy that would need to reach out to you and say, Steve, can you lay down <laughs> a guitar part for me? Um, Okay, uh, suggestion number two is thoroughly understand the musical needs of any show you are pitching to. Can you elaborate? Well, if you're lucky enough to get a brief for a show, 
like there, there's a company that will send me briefs saying, hey, we've got a new show that's going to be on Discovery, for example, and, um, and they'll, they'll list the, the criteria, you know, we're looking for this kind of music. Um, and if you don't really uh, understand, I mean, usually they'll tell you about like it's, say it's a crime drama show or it's a, uh, you know, it's a reality show, you know, whatever it is, um, th that sort of uh, identifies a certain style of music that you should be you should be writing and if you really don't understand what they're asking for um, you're going to be wasting your time setting up stuff that doesn't fit so every sh there's no show that's that's 100 unique it's always going to be uh related or similar to something else that's already on the air something that's been successful um you know so it's best to kind of look at these other shows and see what kind of music they've been using and that should help point you in the right direction. I mean, and it doesn't mean that you can't write um, something a little bit different, but as long as it fits in that style. Uh, which relates to the next thing on the list, which is there's no need to reinvent the wheel, mimic successful cues until you've mastered a style. Uh, I, I think almost every musician, every creative person, whether they're a writer or a visual artist, they all want to do their best work and show off this is what i'm capable of and i certainly understand that and you can't blame anybody uh but cues are often very simple and people tend to overwrite overplay um so can you talk a bit about mimicking successful cues you've mastered uh until you've mastered a style where um I'm trying to think of a better way to phrase this. If I were in that position, I would watch the show, I would listen to the cues, rather than going, I'm gonna be a genius composer. So I would look at what's actually being used and mimic that stuff. Is that the approach you would recommend? Yeah, yeah, so if the show was, whatever it was, it might be a, like a, not a Duck Dynasty, but a, like a pawnbroker's kind of show where they used like a lot of blues, a lot of 12 bar blues it would be in your best interest to use the same chord progressions that blues guitarists and any blues musician has been using for a hundred years. You know, it's essentially a one, four, five chord progression, you know, C, F, and G seven. If all of a sudden you decide you want to go C, F, B flat, C minor, G seven, you know, it's, it might sound bluesy, but it's, it's really, it, it's not exactly what, what blues is. So don't, reinvent the wheel use what is common and take existing cues listen to you know whether you can pick them out from the show or listen to them from you know audio recordings on spotify or whatever um, and try to mimic that cue do your own version of it can you capture that same vibe can you does it sound like if if somebody if you play both those songs your track and the other track um, to somebody, you know, would they be able to identify which one is yours and which one is the one from the TV show? You know, does it does it fit the show? Right. Uh, so people need to resist the natural inclination to try and one up the stuff that's already being used because they're liable to overwrite, overproduce. Uh, but the flip side of that is, can you blame people for thinking? Well, gee, then I'm just creating something that's like that and equivalent to it, and it's got the same progression. I don't feel very creative. How do you reconcile the uh, 
you know, mimicking stuff and the lack of creativity, do you find ways to build in your own form of creativity? You can. I mean, there are limits, though. I mean, you really, you really have boundaries in, in any style that you're writing. Uh, you can try to be really creative and stuff, but I mean, unless you see yourself getting placements from those cues, be, you know, in spite of those those differences that you're putting in, uh, I would stick to the the style that that fits that that show. Um, he, here's the thing: is that like with dramedy, I mean, all we always go, God, dramedy always sounds the same with those g-damn pizzicato strings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know what the the reason the reason they're they're always looking for new material is because the editors are tired of listening to the same tracks over and over. I think a lot of it's for them, not not so much the audience. They just need something fresh, you know, so, something brand new, even though it's the exact same thing. But you know, you're going to put your personality into it. So how do you bring your personality in that new little you know? Uh spice, if you will, to, you know, pizzicato strings and some sort of mallet, you know, marimba sounding instrument. The, those are things that are very typically heard. Andromedy, what other things might you introduce that doesn't take it too far afield, but yet is different enough where they go, oh, that's cool. That's a little different, but still usable. Any ideas? on? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, this is, this is where you're, you're learning about finding your own voice. You know, what it is, what is it that you're bringing to the to the program. Um, I, I did a lot of dramedy, and I, I found one of the things I had so much fun with was putting bongos in. So pizzicato strings, marimba vibes, and bongos, and that kind of takes me back to the my old you know childhood days of Hanna Barbera cartoons. You know they <laughs> use a lot of bongos in, in those cues. You know, and they're comical and. And it really kind of fits, and I I had a lot of success with it, you know. And I don't hear a, a, a lot of other people using bongos, you know. So I kind of, I think I, I I got away with something there. Um, if I can interject something completely unrelated to the show, but I've got to tell this quick story. When my now older daughters, who are like 37 and 40 years old, uh, when I moved out here, and the kids would come out and spend summers with me. The first time uh, I got an invite from Joe Barbera's assistant to come over to hang out in his office with my kids because he was out of town. Their, their office is right across the street from a post-production audio post place I was running. So my kids got to sit in Fred Flintstone's car in Joe Barbera's office and play with these life-size Hanna-Barbera um, dolls all day. So uh, I am forever in her debt. Uh, what a, you know, how many kids can say that? I don't know, maybe they invited kids all the time. But um, Okay, moving on to your next one, which was... Uh, where to go? Okay, don't overthink melodies. They're often um, omitted in the actual placement. Please elaborate. I've spent so much time. I like writing melodies. Um, it kind of sets your tune apart from anything else. Um, but I kind of learned along the way that a majority of the time, the version of the cue that got used was the one without the melody. Hmm. You just think, oh, how did I spend all this time writing a melody? Um, <laughs> You know, you, you do need to have a melody, but, you know, don't overthink it because that's not really what you're selling. You're selling a vibe. You know, you're selling an emotion. And, um, you know, you should have some melody in there. But honestly, I think, you know, you need to 
keep it sparse, but you know, it's it's related to the style of music you're writing. Um, but I think less is more in this case. Um, how do you know uh, what's your process for checking your vibe quotient when you finish a cue or as you're writing it? Do you keep thinking, "Am I on target for the vibe?" And when you're all done, do you listen back to it with that singular thought? Have I accomplished the right vibe? Um, does it convey the emotion I intended when I first start out? Are those all part of your process? Yeah, totally. Well, first of all, I always name the cue before I start writing. So that way I have something, because that title represents what this cue is about, what the feeling is, what the emotion is. Mm -hmm. So I always reference the title as I'm, as I'm writing. Um, one of the things you can do is, is you know, find clips of shows on YouTube and look for scenes that sort of represent the, the, the emotion that you're trying to convey with your music. Then take your music and play it over that clip, you know, mute the audio on, on the YouTube video and play your cue. And does it, does it evoke that emotion in this scene? And that's a, that's a simple way to find the truth about what you're writing. You can always ask somebody, you, you know, your, your spouse or, you know, a friend, you know, does this sound, you know, whatever it is, happy, sad, or, you know, tearful, emotional. Um, and, you know, those kind of responses are, are really sort of based on their frame of mind at, at, at that moment. Uh, I, but I use my gut on that and, and, and try to evaluate. And, you know, sometimes I'm wrong. Um, you mentioned titles, and I'd actually made a note about titles. Uh, good titles get more placements. Would you agree with that statement? And if so, why is that? Um, no. I will say bad titles will <laughs> prevent placements. Okay. Uh, but good titles can help you uh, get in the pool of, of uh, cues that will be listened to. So as, a, as an audio editor searching, uh, they, they use keywords and they search for, you know, certain things that they're looking for. And it'll come back with a list of, you know, 50 or 100, 1,000 tracks, whatever. And they'll just start scanning the list. And if a title evokes uh, something that, that they're looking for, they're probably inclined to listen to that. Uh, but if, it, if it's a bad track title or it has nothing to do with what they're looking for, they'll skip it entirely. Now, that's... That's saying if your if your cue remains titled that way, because some libraries, even if it's an exclusive library, will retitle it to fit their needs. They may not like your title. They may decide to change it. So there's nothing you can do about that. And frankly, you should kind of be happy that they did change it because they know their clientele and what's going to appeal to them. So they're just trying to make more money with your music, which ultimately pays them and pays you. Um, somebody asked a good question in the chat room. It's like, well, uh, where'd it go? Something, oh, what would be a bad title? So let's take uh, a surf rock piece, a Dick Dale surf rock piece. How might you title that for a good title and what might be a bad title? Oh, a good title might be um, Hitting the Waves. Okay. So and that way if a, an editor is scanning a bunch of stuff and he sees Hitting the Waves, he knows the title telegraphs what it's going to sound like. Uh, what would what would a bad title be? Shark bait. <laughs> okay, still aquatic in nature, but it doesn't tell you oh, anything. It, yeah, yeah it doesn't anything that they're really surfing. It could be boating. Right. It could be bum 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 bum. I mean, you know, yeah, it could be a lot of things. 
um, somebody might title one, uh, you know, um, Rosalie's song because they were in love with the girl when they were 20 years old and they used to go surfing together and her name was Rosalie. So it was very personal to them, but means nothing to an editor scanning a list of 100 cues looking for the stuff. Well, unless he had a girlfriend named Rosalie and then they had a bad experience and then, and then he would hate your song. Right. <laughs> um, okay, let's move on to keeping melodies simple so as to not interfere with dialogue. Yeah, this this is a tough one because if you are going to write melodies and they are going to keep the, the melody in the in the queue, um, you don't want to walk all over dialogue. You, you would like your piece to maintain the melody. Um, and that's where often they end up saying, you know, I can't use the melody. It's just, it's, it's in the way. Um, or they push the music way, way back in the background. Um, something like a source cue, like in a, in a bar where you, you have jazz piano and you're playing, a, you know, play Misty, uh, Misty um, and you're going to hear the melody, right? But it's sort of in the background and sort of a different, a different um, texture um, that's as a source cue. But if it's as a, you know, uh, a background to the scene, it just needs to be unobtrusive. Um, because you don't know how the cue is going to be used. You don't know if it's going to be uh, females speaking where their voice register is typically higher than men, uh, or men, you know, in a, you know, their register is much lower. Um, if you knew that, if you were scoring to picture, you would know that, and you'd be able to adjust your melody to uh, contrast the dialogue. But you don't. So um, if you do have to have melody, I would recommend keeping it as sparse as possible and still maintaining the same uh, emotion and fitting in the genre that you're writing. Makes perfect sense. Uh, if you had to guesstimate of, and I know this is kind of hard to know because you haven't seen every or heard every one of your cues that's ever been used in a show, I'm sure. But if you had to guess if it's 50-50 or 80-20, um, times that your cues are used with melodies versus uh, them using stems where the melody is non-existent or barely in there. Would you say melodic stuff gets used more often or less often or is it about equal? No, less. And that's, that's why I bring this up because I, I learned after you know looking at my cue sheets that gosh darn it, I spent all this time on the melody and they're hardly using it. They're using the, you know, the bed without it. So that's when I really started rethinking how I approach production cues. Um, how long did it take you? How long had you been making cues before that realization was your light bulb moment? Well, unfortunately, it takes you know two to three years because from the time you compose something to the time it gets in a library and used in a show and then you see the results in your cue sheets, uh, it, it could take a little while. So um, I always try to analyze what's going on with my music, which cues are are working, which ones didn't, you know, I didn't see any placements with, uh, but you never know. It's, it's, it could be luck of the draw. A piece that you think is a really crummy track could get used a lot. And one that you, you labored over with, you know, lots of love could never get used. So it's hard to tell, but I do try to use some analytics and, and figure out what worked and what didn't. Uh, while we're on that topic, have you ever figured out, do you have a particular key that seems to be the most popular? Is is that a thing where, you know, stuff done in the key of 
G gets used more often than something that's in D? Um, I don't. I had a brilliant idea once that I thought if I had a music library, I, I would require that every track be in either, you know, C, D, G, or, you know, these related keys so that music editors could merge these tracks together and they wouldn't sound like they're jumping all over the place um, harmonically. Um, but I think people naturally tend to use keys. Um, guitar players will tend to use open string keys like D, G, A, and E. Um, you know, minor keys, uh, you know, E minor, D minor. Um, you know, if you're a keyboard player, you might tend to gravitate towards C minor and G minor. Um, I think it just depends on the instrument you're using. I, you know, I don't see too many uh, cues in, in off keys like E flat minor or, or B major. Uh, you know, D sharp minor. Uh, uh, it's the same as E flat minor, <laughs> but just you know, complicated. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be easy. But you know, whatever whatever works for you personally. Going back to your earlier observation about uh, choosing your key based on the uh, the dialogue being male or female. So if you were working with a library and that library did a big chunk of their business with the Kardashians, which is now irrelevant because they're going off the air. But uh, if you knew that library XYZ123 uh, got a lot of stuff in the Kardashians, and you know that probably 70% of the dialogue or greater in the Kardashians is female, might you ever consider that when writing cues for that library, hoping to get them in Kardashians? You could, but at some point, you know the show's going to end, or you hope the show's going to end, and that they're going to put those cues in other shows. Right. So you don't want the shelf life of a cue to be limited to uh, the Kardashians, although they've lasted longer than most people, I think, uh, expected them to. But I do have cues. <laughs> that, was, that was a backhanded compliment, if ever I've heard one. <laughs> I, I do have cues that have been used for 10 or 12 years now. I mean, they're still being placed if you had to guesstimate maybe you actually know this number your highest earning queue over its lifetime how many years has it been out there and how much money in aggregate would you guesstimate that it might have earned you oh um you know i, I probably could have figured this out uh, you know probably less than a thousand dollars i think interesting um yeah, that's why you need a lot of cues right you're not gonna you're not gonna live off of one cue no matter how good it is um yeah a lot of people that are new to this part of the music industry haven't grasped the concept yet of uh it's a penny business you just need a lot of placements to make a lot of pennies and it adds up over time and then becomes cumulative over the years as you get more and more cues and more and more different libraries, you know, it's almost, the income is almost always going up. You may have a little stumble here and there, but. Uh, That's the painful reality of this business is that it's a, uh, uh, a fast way to make a slow buck, as my, uh, my colleague <laughs> would say. But don't discourage people because, you know, as you and I well know, there are taxi members out there with six-figure and multi-six-figure incomes. They didn't get there in three or four years, though. It took them you know, eight yeah, or 10 yeah. or 15 years. But um, they're pushing out music at, at a super high qu quantity. 
you know, you can't just write one track a week. You know, you really need to be writing three or four or five tracks consistently, you know. Uh, you have to make this, you know, if you want it to be a hobby, that's fine. But if you want to make it a career, then you have to put in the work and the time. Oh, my goodness. Work. Um, <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. I, you know, it, it is a job. I mean, it doesn't sound fun when you couch it in terms of being a job, but how many people get to make music for a living for their job? It sure beats a lot of other jobs. Um, let's see. Number six, uh, in writing ABA form, uh, don't just copy the first A section as the final A section. Vary it in instrumentation, energy, etc. Please do elaborate on that. Uh, I often refer to it as the developmental arc, and people have come to misunderstand that, meaning that an arc is like, you know, the arch in St. Louis or an arc of a rainbow, and it's not. An arc is like a story arc that keeps moving and takes you to a destination, which is, you know, beginning, middle, and end. So can you please elaborate on how you accomplish that in a musical way? Yeah, so for, first let's recap, uh, define what the structure of, of music and production music is, ABA, uh, just labeling them, uh, letter A is the, is the first movement, letter B is the second movement, and letter uh, C is a recapitulation of the, the first movement. So A, B, and then C is really just A again. Um, they should be related, and there should be some, um, some, well, we talk about arc. The cue has to go somewhere. It has to start, it has to have a middle, and it has to have an end. And, and the end, if the middle, if the end is the same as the, the start, then you have a start and a middle and a start. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't really go anywhere. I actually, um, I, I got this um, criticism from, I did uh, uh, at a taxi rally s several years ago, uh, where it was the one-on-one um, uh, -on -one mentoring. And, and I had done that. I had taken the A piece and then the bridge, and then I, I took the, the A section and just plopped it on at the end. And the criticism was, you know, you really need to uh, do something different whether it's adding additional instrumentation so the piece um, grows uh, or it, uh, you know, there's like a, a, even if you like drop out everything except for the bass and the drums and then you little by little grow back into something, something bigger. Um, of course, you know, it depends on the style of the music you're writing. Uh, but the point is that it, it should go from A, from point A to point B, B being the very end of the end of the track. Um, because if, if you're going to do the the last A, the same as the first A, there's no reason the editor needs to listen to the last A. They just, they have an A and a B section, and that's all they have to work with. But if they know that they have something that's even bigger than the first A section, uh, that might work in part of a scene where the original A section does not. Um, I had a, a, a very classy, for lack of a better word, very knowledgeable, classy lady named Laurel Ostrander who spoke at a couple of rallies back to back, Taxi Road Rallies, our convention, if you're new and don't know what that is. And she was astonishingly great at teaching and she played video and showed us how she chose music and then how she did little temp edits to try and see if it would work against the scene. And one of the things that she talked about was that 
she would listen to the beginning, just the first few seconds and go, okay, this is in my ballpark, it has potential, but then would skip through the queue. They, it's, they don't have the time to listen to a 90 second queue. So they'll go, I like where this is going vibe wise. There's that vibe word again. Uh, but I need something that's a little bigger and a little more in your face. So I'm going to scroll through the waveform and look at where the waveform is bigger uh, and denser at the end to see if it in fact goes there. Oh, look at that. It does. Yes, I can use that now. So that makes the, the point that you're making is if it's just uh, the A section just repeats at the end, you don't give the editor the option they may need when they need something bigger or they may need to go with the front piece because it's a little more sparse. Yeah, and if I could plug, plug my book for a moment, there is a cue where we um, talk about that exactly where um, I actually have a, uh, a shot of the, um, the waveform. Give me a second. <laughs> I'm looking too. Oh, okay, it's on page 13. So if you look at this, this waveform. Right. Uh, yeah, there's the, you're, you're perfectly in frame. Uh, yeah, okay, it, so you see where it starts very quiet and it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it's so big. And in this particular track, it's an eight bar piece and this 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 kind of falls under like the trailer uh, uh, epic style of music where it's the same chord progression. It's an eight bar chord progression that repeats and repeats and repeats and grows and grows and grows. So an editor can look at that and they go, yeah, I like the the first eight bars because it's just piano. But then I bring in you know um, you know horns and then I bring in you know strings and then I bring in the choir and it gets bigger and bigger and they can look at that waveform and know exactly what's happening. Um. Am I correct or incorrect in guessing this is somehow Lord of the Ring-ish in its overall vibe because the title of it is Ring of Power and it's epic? Yes, exactly. I think I might actually say that. I, I mean, I, 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 I tell you what I think the uh, what the track is. Yeah, I don't think you say it in the text on that page, but that's a great example. Here I am just looking at the title, having never heard the track. But if I were an editor and I were working on a trailer and I wanted something that sounded in the ballpark and the vibe of Lord of the Rings, I would listen to this piece. It would get the audition. It would make it to the short list of stuff that I have to hear. Yes. Ring of Power, three words. It tells me so much. Good job on that. You are really good at titling. I know I've paid you that compliment before, and I think it's well-deserved. Um, okay, so that actually brings us to uh, the next point, which is in that waveform that you just showed, which I will hold up one more time. Um, so you look at this waveform, and you see that it goes from being small to big. Um, and let's say that the editor just needs big. 
and they're not going to play the whole thing, so you need what is called in the industry an edit point. Can you explain how you might build edit points into this so that an editor could use sections of it? Um, well, because the in this case, the, the piece is designed around eight bar phrases. So essentially, at the end of each eight, eight bars, it would technically be an edit point because then something new follows that. Mm -hmm. um, and just by listening to it, you know, it's not silence or, you know, there might be a small break, but you feel that that previous section is ending and now you're, you're entering a new section. Um, so you try to make it easy enough for the editor to be able to cut it there and be able to just start at that next eight bar phrase. Um, some people are of the belief, and I'm not sure, I don't think they're 100% right, but they're also not 100% wrong. Some people early in the game think that an edit point means that you need, you know, a, a rest in there, that you need dead air. Um, and any editor worth their salt doesn't need dead air to cut on. Sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it isn't. Can you give suggestions as to other things that you can, uh, like at the end of your eight bar phrase, uh, would they come back in on a kick drum um, for the next eight bars if they choose the second eight bar phrase is the, the section they want? Um, could it be a horn hit? Could it be a cymbal crash? Any of that stuff, right? It doesn't have to be dead air or rest. It, it doesn't, but I, I look at music cues as if you were a singer. Uh, a singer would not be able to sing eight bars of music without breathing. Okay, there has to be a breath. So you're going to sing a phrase, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. Okay, so that's an edit point right there. It's the same thing musically. There just has to be some kind of a breath or something that feels like we've we've stopped one thing and then we're going to bring in something else. Now, it could have a, a pickup, a drum pickup, da-dum-ba-bum, to a downbeat. Um, as long as it's, you know, it's identifiable, um, but you just feel that there is that, that breath. I mean, that's the best way I, I can explain it. I think that's a great explanation. Um, intros. Uh, I'm not going to tell Don't them. Don't do them. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about what you wrote here. But people love to make these 30-second-plus intros because I want to get them in the mood. Tell them why they shouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, the reason you're they're using your music because the vibe is going to fit the scene and if they can't get to that vibe in, until after the intro, uh, it's, just, it's just not going to work. In, intros have a purpose, and depending on the style of music, but a, an intro could just be uh, a beat and a half drum pickup. That mm -hmm. could be an intro. Or it could be a two-bar turnaround, if, you know, like a, if it were a jazz tune or something. Um, but honestly, I've gotten away with probably 99% of my tracks don't have intros. So you, you bang, get to bang right in on the A section? Yep. And how big do you bang in on the A section? Uh, I've heard two schools of thought from people who, um, you being one school and somebody I had on recently said that they always start out with the, the big juicy red meat stuff right up front because they want to show an editor what the full impact sounds like. There are other people that will, won't go intro small, but they'll start out more scant and build it up every four bars or eight bars. Which do you prefer or do you not have a methodology? Well, look, if, you, if you're writing in this ABA form like we just talked about where the first A section is smaller, 
and the final A section is bigger, well, there's your bigger one at, at, the, la at the last A section. So the editors have, have uh, three things to pick from, the A section, the B section, and the bigger A section at the end. And so if you're just starting off without an intro, it's the same thing as if an editor just edited into the last A section. There is no intro for that. You're just right. starting there. So that's why I don't use intros mostly. Always um, exceptions. Right. That's true. We should preface the entire 90 minutes of what we're going to talk about today. There are always exceptions to everything, but do you want to bet on the exception or the rule? Personally, I would put my money on the rule. Um, Picking a singular emotion for the cue and maintain it throughout, even in the middle B section. Um, there was a, a gentleman, I'm going to go to one of our questions that got emailed before the show because this is relevant to that. Uh, this is from uh, a taxi member named Bob Stoner. I tend to write my musical, uh, my instrumental music in suites, that he puts in quotes, with about 10 minutes of material melding together various themes and moods. Is that a good way to operate? How do I deconstruct these pieces into cues that someone might use in a movie or a TV show? Or is it okay to submit the whole piece since the different themes are related in certain ways and really are of a piece, um, which would give someone more flexibility about how to use the music? Um, so that it relates well to you talking about keeping a singular emotion. I'm of the mind that something that's a suite may deviate from a range of emotions right so talk about why it's important to stick with one emotion and why Bob Stoner probably shouldn't go the route of creating suites yeah if you're right if you're a film composer and you're writing to picture uh, suites or just extended musical cues work because you're you you know what the scene is doing because you're writing to that scene as a production music composer you don't know how your music is going to be used so it needs to be uh, a singular purpose, a singular emotion, because an editor is looking for a track that fits this emotion for this part of the scene. Might not even be the whole scene, might just be uh, from the moment the, the character stands up from the table and walks out the door. Mm -hmm. Might be two seconds, might be eight seconds long, you don't know, but it, there's an emotion that they're looking for. So. If you need to give them a piece that is that exact emotion. Now, they might take your first A section, they might take your B section, and they might take your last A section. They need to be related in some way that it's, it's cohesive, uh, and it makes sense that they could pick up any parts of that cue and use it, and it's conveying that emotion. So the B section really you know, should be so related to the A section, but you know, different enough that you know you understand it's it's a bridge of sorts. Uh, I like the fact that you refer to it as a bridge. That's probably the easiest way to explain it and make it uh, something a lot of people can grasp. How might you go ahead? Might you go about writing a B section? Do you have any sort of default uh, methodology? Like I'm gonna do inversions on the chords or I'm going to invert the progression or I'm going to change the rhythm from quarter notes to half notes or you know how do you, how do you create a B section do you have anything that's kind of your default 
Yeah, you know, like I, I wouldn't change the ri the rhythmic structure of the tune very much. I, I, and I've done these things where I've done like a medium uh, groove in the A section and the B section. I just go into a double time, mm -hmm. and and for me that was really cool. But I, this is one of those things that I've the mistakes that I've made, and I've learned that you know what, had it how is an how are you going to sell this? It's like two different tunes. You know, make it two different cues is, is what that is. So there are there are things that you can do to uh, take a cue and and modify for this bridge. Uh, one of the things I like to do is is modulate up a minor third. So if I'm in C major, I'll go to E flat major. But don't stay there very long. You need to get back to C major because you don't know where the editor wants to end the track. He's going to take the, the stinger, which is the button ending at the very end of the cue, and he's going to cut it and he's going to slide it over and he's going to put it where that cue should end. So if you jump to your bridge and it's moved up to the E flat key um, and he's going to put in the, the, the change to, to the C, uh, it might not sound musically there. Um, so you can make modulations and it's a very cinematic uh, modulation, the minor third. Um, but don't don't linger, you know, come back and then just, you know, just change some elements of your instrumentation, uh, change the color. Um, how how long should a B section be? <laughs> I do get asked that question um, fairly often, and it's hard to answer because it would depend on the tempo of the piece and the style, mm -hmm. whether it's a you know legato orchestral thing or whether it's punk rock. Two drastically different approaches. Is there any sort of starting point or default number of measures or time element involved? Now you know I I try to make my cues at least 90 seconds long, 90 seconds to two minutes. So if I start off structuring it as 90 seconds, I try to make each section one third, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. But again, it depends on the style of music that I'm writing. I might, it might, the B section may be lo uh, shorter than the A sections, but generally not longer because so your main thematic material is the A section. So if you have a B section, it's approximately, you know, equivalent to a third. Uh, do you build in any sort of arc into the in dynamic growth in the B section as well, where you add instruments for the next eight bars or the second eight bars um, to give it some dynamic variant? Yeah, it's, um, you know, you can look at a cue like you would look at, let's take a, a TV series, uh, like a drama, where you have an arc of the entire season. Okay, let's say it's 10 episodes, which is common today. So that's that's an arc. Um, but each episode has its own arc. So I, lo I look at the same thing with music cues. Yeah, there's an arc for the whole cue, but each section A, B, and A each have their own arcs. Okay. Um, one thing that I recently was reminded of, and I'm going to ask you about this, uh, even though I hadn't planned on it, is somebody got a return from a taxi screener because they had one instrument that clearly just didn't sound as good as the other instruments used in the track. And the member shot me an email saying, I can't believe they returned it because of this one bad sounding instrument. I thought, well, I can totally see that because it kind of, it, it, I can't come up with the right word, but it makes you go, what? It makes you notice that something's wrong when there's one instrument that doesn't sound as good 
professional and realistic as the other instruments. Is that just me thinking that, or am I right? No, because it's it's not organic to the rest of the piece. Um, it's like if you have uh, a garden with all these beautiful flowers, <laughs> and then you have this one plastic pumpkin sitting in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a great explanation. That's a really, really good explanation. Okay. You know, maybe your garden's not going to win an award in the neighborhood uh, gardening contest. That's a great explanation. I'm going to steal that and use it liberally. Um, and right. I'm also going to name my next punk band the uh, Plastic Pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about a couple um, businessy things uh, that were also on your list. Uh, uh, when pitching music, never attach an audio file. Um, what should they do instead, and why should they not attach an audio file? Stand outside their door with a boombox over their head. And, no, don't do that. Um, <laughs> ne never, never send audio files. And the, and the reason is that you're you're just filling up. You don't know what kind of e email services they're using, and you're, you're you're filling up their mailbox with you know big files. Um, send them a, a link to a streamable file, whether it's on SoundCloud or Bandcamp or, or some other service like Disco. Um, I use a service called uh, Real Crafter. Um, and those are, you know, those are good services to use because you will know if somebody listens to it and how much they listen to it. So if you listen just to SoundCloud, you know, you, you really don't know. You know, the, the play count might go up, but you don't know how much of the, the track they listen to. Uh, and there's also the virus factor, which seems to be an ever-growing problem. Um, who You know, yes, your email program doesn't like it, your hard drive doesn't like it, and you could get um, some nasty virus or, or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, ransomware that mm -hmm. got somehow attached to a music file. Yeah, it, it is risky, though. I mean, even s sending a link and say, click here. Yeah. Uh, because that, that's where the, you know, the, the trouble begins. So, um, I mean, I think I think that's the most common way, you know, uh, libraries, you know, prefer for you to um, give them your music. But um, um, you also mentioned never sign a contract without first reading it and understanding what you are signing. So many people who are new to the game look at these contracts and they're intimidated, and I certainly understand why. There's language that's not familiar to them. They don't know what the norm, uh, you know, like what a typical range of deal points would be. Is it a 50-50, which is kind of the average typical deal? Uh, but they were trained in music school or music business education that they got in college, you know, never give up your publishing. But this publisher or this, you know, music library wants 100% of the publisher share. They're probably ripping me off. Can you talk a bit about what typical deals are and the kinds of things that they should look for in a contract? Yeah, and this is one of the things I did spend some time with in my, in my first book talking about contracts and, and how to break it down. What are the typical things that are in contracts? Um, what are the, um, you know, the things, the boilerplate things that they put in there, like, you know, arbitration and, you know, just things that are going to be in any contract, but the specifics about what is, what is the breakdown between, uh, how much writer share are you entitled to? How much publisher share are you entitled to? Uh, uh, 
Is it exclusive? Is it non-exclusive? Uh, there are sample contracts in the book, um, and you know, and so this is a, a, a good tutorial about contracts. Uh, ideally, if you're new to this, you should find a music attorney who can re review the contract for you, and uh, that can be uh, expensive, obviously. Uh, or find colleagues that are more experienced and ask them to help you, you know, sort through this. And, you know, over time, you, you'll kind of figure this out. But I know you're excited to get a track signed, but don't just sign it and, uh, and send it in. I remember Chuck Henry telling the story about uh, one of his writers. He sent him a contract, and, and he had it signed and scanned and sent back to, them, in, to him within three minutes. Right. Well, <laughs> The composer clearly could not have read this contract. So Chuck owns everything this guy has done now. I, I've actually heard that story. And I, my guess is because the person knew Chuck, knew in quotes from him seeing him on taxi TV or meeting him at a road rally. So reputationally, um, he felt that he was okay and probably didn't look at the contract, but still he should have. Well, don't assume that. Yeah, that's right. If you've ever met Chuck, you know. No. <laughs> Chuck's a great guy. So why did you write this book after you wrote this incredibly comprehensive book? What is well, the difference it. between the two? Yeah, the first book, you know, talks about the business of the production music industry. And it talks, it gives you all the ins and outs, and it gives you some basics about structures of cues, but it really doesn't talk about the composition process and of course that's a very personal thing and I thought why don't I share uh, some of my experiences with my my cues and I started off with a book of production music cues that are are orchestrally based but in multiple genres so there is dramedy so there is uh, there is epic there is uh, um, comedy there is uh, you know a bunch of different genres <laughs> Uh, jazz, there's uh, uh, uplifting, epic, fantasy adventure, romantic. Uh, so, because you know, you've played some of my cues uh, on, on Taxi TV and stuff, and I and I do get people, you know, who've liked my tracks and ask me questions about it and stuff. And I just think, if if you want to write orchestral music, um, you know, you can look at scores you know, by Beethoven and Tchaikovsky, and you can look at film scores by uh, John Williams and Hans Zimmer, uh, Alan Silvestri, and you can start looking at their orchestration and, and kind of understanding what, what they're doing. But none of that is specific to the production music industry. So I thought, well, why don't I just give you a bunch of tunes that have, you know, not all of these have been used because some of these I created for this book, um, you know, because some of them are owned by the, you know, the publishers. Um, but they're sort of based on other tracks that I've, that I've uh, published or that are, you know, being used. Right. Um, so even if, you know, I, and I don't want to leave anybody out, um, it is music notation. This, they're full of scores, orchestral scores. And well, gosh, I don't read music. How am I going to, you know, figure this out? Well, prior to the full score, there are descriptions of the cue, breaking it down section by section, and there are uh, snippets of each section and talking about um, how those, how what instruments are being used and, and how they're voiced, 
And so even if you don't read music very well or even not at all, hopefully the description will kind of uh, put you in the right direction. And th there is audio available. It's, there's a link to the Hal Leonard website and you can you know, listen to the cues, download them. And just by you know, using your ear and following along with my descriptions, uh, you'll get an idea. And you know, it's not to say that you know, these are the cues that you should be writing. I, I'm just presenting, um, if you are writing orchestral music, this is stuff that works. These are voicings that work. Maybe you're, maybe you're new to writing strings. Uh, maybe you, you, know, you don't understand how to, how to write for woodwinds or, or something like that. So this information is there. And you know, there's only nine tunes in it, but if you're studying any, any score book, you know, it's, it could be months of study you know, to, to get a lot out of it. So I, I hope it helps. And you know, my intent was to create a series of books um, uh, in production music cues. So, well, you know, if if this is successful and if, and if people are, uh, you know, if it's if it's working for people, then you know, I'll create more content. You know, the next book might be you know guitar cues. I I don't know yet. Um, let me give people an idea. Um, so, in a particular cue in this book, and I can just barely read music. Um, I learned how as probably a teenager. I haven't used that skill set in a long time, but I, I, I know what a measure looks like. Uh, I know a quarter note, half note, whole note, that kind of stuff. But I don't really need to look at the chart, but what if I were listening to this uh, under virtual the subhead of virtual instruments, for the, Steve says, for this recording, I utilize the following instruments. Berlin woodwinds for the piccolo and flutes, <clears throat> Berlin brass for horns, trumpets, trombones, bass, trombone, and tuba, Spitfire brass for chimbasso, is that how you say that? Uh, chimbasso or chimbasi. Okay. Um, Cineperk for the percussion, cymbals, uh, certos, monster, low hits, tickies, there's a word I've not heard, um, except when I picked them off my leg at summer camp, uh, <laughs> fra fra frame drums, and Doombeck, which I'm guessing is an Arabic Central. drummer? Yeah. What kind? Yeah, like a Middle Eastern drummer. Yeah, okay. Um, deep percussion beds, too. Voxos choir, Cine piano, Cine harp, Tina Go, solo cello, Berlin strings, Spitfire symphonic strings, recorded in staff, pa staff pad, mixed in cue bass. And then, this is really cute. He goes on to, under the subhead of usage. He says, how might a cue like this be used? That's a really important thing to know. As suggested by the title, Human Struggle Overcoming Insurmountable Challenges. The cue builds and builds with a huge payoff. This could be used in any type of montage where all seems hopeless, but finally reaches the goal. It could be used for sports, um, invention, Oh, okay, in inventing something. I thought you meant intervention. Uh, love, you name it. This would fit uh, in numerous situations. And then he's got a subhead for metadata. When creating metadata for this cue to help identify the music's char characteristics, you might include in the description uh, celebratory, determined, feel-good, glorious, motivational, optimistic, triumphant, etc. So not only could you look at the actual um, score to learn, oh, this is you know how he wrote it, but just the information on this side of the page is so incredibly comprehensive. That if you're listening to the cue and reading this stuff, you're going to learn a lot. Um, honestly, when I opened the book and I saw uh, the charts, I went, <laughs> and then I started really reading the book and going, 
Ah, I see what he did here. So I, I do recommend the book. It's uh, unbelievably comprehensive. You're actually a great author. Um, who knew? You know, yeah, I just you. knew you as a taxi member that I liked. I didn't know that you were so deep. And... I, I didn't know I could write either. Wow. Yeah. Really? Uh, how did you yeah. discover that you could? I just started writing and my, my publisher said, you're a good writer. <laughs> so well, I kept going. Go. Um, so let's take some questions that were sent in before the show, and then we'll try and take some from the uh, from the <laughs> long arms, Ken. Okay, uh, we will take some from the chat room. Uh, so this one's from Ewart Williams. For your genres, what would you say are the must-have sound libraries, sample libraries? Oh boy, it changes daily. I mean, gosh. Um, I mean, you know, you'd have to, you know, ask about a specific um, a genre, but I mean, for example, um, well, okay, I mean, the libraries that are really expensive, those are the ones to get, because <laughs> those are going to be the higher quality. Uh, but you have to know how to use them, because I've had taxi members get really cranky with screeners saying the strings don't sound authentic here, and they say, it's a $1,000 library. Yeah, but you didn't use it well. You know, there weren't articulations and dynamics uh, and expression built into it. It was just like, you know, a 20-second draw of the bow. That's a big part of it. Um, but if a person spent $1,000, say they, they bought that library 10 years ago, um, you could probably get a library that's twice as good as that now for $250 just because technology improves over time and there's there are just more you know techniques to use in these libraries uh, disk space is cheaper so you can have more you know more content uh, available so yeah just because you spend a lot of money on a particular library uh, you know you do have to keep updated with with technology it uh, you know it's the bar is very high so if you want to compete you do need to have some high quality sounds um, but uh, you know I, I'm one of those suckers that, that buys every library that comes out and you know sometimes you get a real stinker and um, yeah I don't know so I you know I, I can't list you know specific ones but I can tell you the popular ones like for orchestral music um, Spitfire and orchestral tools um, have the have the big ones. Uh, uh, Spitfire has the you know their new uh, uh, Abbey Road series. Um, orchestral Tools, you know they they have their uh, Metropolis Arc series, which is great for um, uh, epic stuff like you know in Trailer. Um, uh, Tom Holkenberg Junkie XL just came out with his drum library, uh, which he used on Mad Max and. Uh, you know, and so that stuff will be will be very useful. And you know, it's you know, it's at a prof professional grade. Um, it's you know, a never ending battle to keep up. The question is best answered by looking at what you've used on the tracks that are described in the book, because you can actually hear what it is that you're reading about. Oh, that's East West or that's Spitfire, and, and know what they sound like when used by somebody who uses them well. So that's my advice on that um well and, and you will see from from track to track that you know may, maybe berlin woodwinds was great for the flute in this track but in the other track i had to use spitfire woodwinds yeah. 
every library is different. They have strengths and weaknesses. You know, there's not one library that you can buy and say, that's it, I'm done. Right. Um, okay, so Market Cal wants to know, I really struggle I struggle with writing good stinger buttoned endings. Do you have any tips or best practices you can recommend? Well, if first of all, if you don't quite get the concept of a button ending, think about, I mean, I think most people have probably played in a band at, at one point in their life. And if you're playing, you know, in front of people, that song has to end. You're not going to fade out in front of an audience. So you have to have an ending. So it's the, basically the same thing. You need to come up with an ending. Um, you know, it could just be simply, you just hit one chord at the end and boom, and, and let it ring out for a second. Um, you know, some, and button endings don't have to be just, you know, boom, and silent. They can go, brum. With natural yeah. decay, so that, that but not a fade. A natural decay, exactly. But yeah, you're not going to fade out on a, on a reprise of a chorus. Um, somebody, I can't remember somebody on the staff, somebody in Taxi TV asked me not that long ago, what's the difference between a buttoned ending? And I think we were talking about one of our A&R meetings about how we write listings here. And they said, what's the difference between a button and a stinger? And I came up with what I thought and still think is a brilliant explanation, if I may take a bow, pat myself on the back. A button is a period, a stinger is an exclamation. Mm. One of them ends it, the other one ends it with pizzazz, <laughs> or in a bigger way. To um, me, when I create the alternate mixes or stems, to me the stinger is, of course, the ending, the button ending, that last chord, but a stinger can also lead up to it. It could be one bar, it could be two bars, it could be four bars, but it, it is that piece of music that defines the ending, how this piece is going to end. So I don't consider a stinger to be just the thing, the one thing. Right. Uh, and you can also... Defines... Sorry, didn't mean to step on you. Well, we have a little bit of a delay here, so sorry. Uh, so the, the button ending is clearly just, you know, it's going to end on the last note. And... A stinger, um, you could probably define a stinger as something that can also be extracted on its own and used to accentuate like a door slam or something. Bump! Uh, and some people will ask for that. It is an alt mix where they just want the sting all by its lonesome. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's never... Nothing is without exception, but those are probably good general concepts around stingers and buttons. Mm -hmm. um, this question is from Pierre Venio. Uh, what made you change your mind about notation software, if you did in any way? And more importantly, how do you use it? Do you start a project on StaffPad and then import it into your DAW? Okay, so music notation software is you know typically used when you're going to be uh, publishing either, in my case, a book where I need written no notation, or you're going to have musicians perform your, your music. Um, I don't, as a general rule, use music notation for very much other than like in the case of this book. Um, I, I've tried using Sibelius in the past, and I just never, you know, as far as like composing music and writing it down. So I've always been a pencil and paper kind of guy, and I have a, a book, um, like, you know, like this, this book here. Um, you know, it's a... a what do you call a spiral bound uh, book. And I just, you know, I write my, my charts on that for my music. 
Um, so I would never write in a, a notation program. However, um, I was introduced to this uh, marvelous program uh, for the iPad last year called StaffPad, and I ended up um, I ended up writing a book on it. So uh, this this book changed my life. Uh, move it to your right a couple inches. There you go. Perfect. All right. So tell us, give us the quick version of uh, what's in that book. Why people should. So buy it. it's you know using your tablet and a pencil. Uh, in the case of uh, iPads, you're using uh, an Apple pencil, um, but it's also available on the Microsoft Surface, Surface tablet. Um, it is using the pencil and paper concept of writing music, and you write the notes and you select all the the instruments. And the the best part about this is that when you're playing them back. You're actually using uh, third-party libraries from Spitfire and Orchestral Tools and Cine Samples, um, and you're rendering this audio um, much like you would in a DAW. And uh, it's just it's spectacular. It's it's literally changed my life in, in composition. Wow! Um, I can actually I can actually I can actually write. I I went like six months without using my DAW because I, I was writing a staff pet. Um, you know, I, I can actually write music now uh, in staff pad, never touch a keyboard to to play a melody. You know, I can just start writing the notes. And, and if the note doesn't sound right, I just take the pencil and slide the note up or down. Um, it's just amazing, amazing tool. Wow. So you can get rid of your MIDI keyboard at this point. <laughs> Pretty much. You know, and then what I, I will do with staff pad is I will uh, export uh, each stave of you know each instrument as a, an audio stem and i can bring that into uh, cubase and then um, master it from there and then i can add additional instruments like if it's a you know a hybrid orchestral where i have uh, synthesizers and sound effects and risers and, and drops and things like that you know i'll use that i'll put that in cubase you know and just you know take the uh, orchestral stuff out of staff pattern um owen gretch wants to know what's your opinion what is in your opinion the best description you can give with regards to melodic content in a cue are shorter more rhythmic melodies more usable in a scene or do they vary according to genre i come from a songwriting background and have had returns from taxi where i was told i was being too melodic for a cue to um to sing along uh, which in hindsight i can now understand why that usually won't work in a scene however i still find it hard to replace these melodies sometimes. So I'm trying to get to the root question, which I think is back at the top. Um, how do you determine what is the best way to approach melody in a cue, which we did talk about earlier, maybe not as elaborative as, as we needed to be? Yeah, I mean, we, we did talk about melody. Less is always more. Um, I have a, a tendency when I create music is to put in everything all the time and then i start editing i start pulling things out um, just to, to leave more space you know there, there's there's more impact with silence than there is with actual sound um, so you know you can write a very busy melody but then go back and start um uh just cutting it down i actually there's a, a little snippet i an example i used in in the first book where uh i took um uh, twinkle twinkle little star as uh, as a, a concept for melody where it's dot 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 and it's consistent quarter notes double those in length 
so make them half notes. Da, 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 da. And so, you know, you've simplified the melody and then you can simplify it even more. And you can, you know, just leave more space, add rests. Uh, but, you know, start busy and then start editing. And That's then what it I, becomes natural over time. Um, I call that melody light, which is stripping out a lot of the melody. Um, I'm not a composer, but I fear that if I were, I would get married to, if I use the approach which you recommend, which makes perfect sense, of putting in everything that comes to mind in the beginning and then editing stuff out, I would get married to what I heard in the beginning and have a difficult time stripping stuff out. Have you ever had that experience or do you get of over course, it pretty quickly? You, yeah, you've invested your heart into writing this stuff and you want everybody to hear it. And it's, it's hard to throw away stuff that you created. That's why if you can have some separation where you are away from your track for a day even, uh, well, you know, I'd say an hour, but if you can get a, a, away from it for a day or two, uh, work on something different so so you're not mm -hmm. you know thinking about this you know you focus on something else and then come back to it and then you can kind of evaluate it in a different light and sometimes it makes more sense that way but you know we don't always have that that time uh, to do it because sometimes you know you're working on a deadline and it's got to be out you know by the morning um, but if you have the time I mean it, and it's a skill that you, know, you learn by doing it over and over and over and, and before you know it you're just writing simpler melodies and you're being more economical. That's really the key to the whole damn game, isn't it? It's just doing it and doing it as often as you can because you do get better with everything you write will be better in some in one regard or another. Either it will be better from a vibe perspective, better from a uh, you know an efficient use of melody perspective, better from um, pulling out the emotion and when you do it often enough excuse me for over a long enough period of time pretty soon you don't even really have to think about it or struggle with it, it just comes out of you and then you check yourself at the end i would assume yeah it's just you know it's learning a different skill because if you come from a, a background of, of writing songs um it's it's slightly different you know it's a, or if you've been writing film scores it's slightly different it's you know it's the, the same skill set you're writing music coming up with harmony and melody and rhythm but you're using it in a different way, one that performs a function that is acceptable in this uh, industry. Um, Kenny Feinberg asks a question. I'd like to know if an instrumental cue gets selected by a publisher, but it has lyrics that have been removed from the mix, so mix minus, you know, vocal. Um, what happens to the rights of the lyrics? You still own them. Um, you, haven't, you haven't signed away the rights to the lyrics. But you if could you never use them with the these. same melody or the same, you know, because, right, you, you could take the lyric and glue it onto another melody and you'd be okay. Yeah. Sorry, I think I stepped on your answer. No, I know. I think that's, I mean, I, I can't think of any other way that, um, because once you sign, if you sign an exclusive deal where they own the publishing uh, and you give it to them as an instrumental track, um, that those lyrics don't exist at that point. Um, Charles Robichaud asked, uh, how do you make broadcast ready tracks? Or rather, how do you know if you have a broadcast ready um, track? Where's the bar? How do you know? Well, I think a lot of people share that question. Sure. Um, learning the process of, of mixing and mastering. You know what? I mean, I've been doing this a long time. And I still need help with it. You know, it's 
it's it's hard to do but um, use tools um, to a b your track with uh, a real production track so you can kind of hear sonically how yours sits with the re you know uh, one that's working or you know real professional one um, I mean that's the best you can do you know because if if you're finding that you're not getting placed a lot because you know the, the audio quality just isn't good enough yet uh, it just sounds like you know you need to work on your your mixing skills uh, and broadcast quality has other other elements about it that need to be considered um, I'm not going to talk about songs and vocals right now but that can be an issue uh, the vocal delivery obviously but it goes back to something we talked about five minutes ago or so which is you can have a broadcast quality track that has one like a lame sounding saxophone sample in it and that just takes the whole thing out of contention because that's the thing that sticks out as being lame so yeah it can't well, be that's your plastic pumpkin right it can't be mostly broadcast quality it's got to be all all broadcast quality and it's not just about the engineering I mean, engineering is important the mix balance is important whether you use dated sounding reverb that's you know like too wet and too long that sounds like spyro gyra from 1981 or something all those things can take you out of contention so it really demands that you are an avid listener of what broadcast quality is out there in the world currently or in the context of the piece you're creating. Otherwise, any one of those things, the Spyrogyra reverb could absolutely be the thing that, that an editor hears that goes, uh, that's kind of dated. Whereas you might think as the creator, wow, the track sounds great. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah, I mean, if, if if they were looking for a track that that if they were looking for a spirogyra type of track then yeah that track would would fit well but i mean that happens to a lot of people you know you kind of work in an era where you know maybe you were uh, you played in bands in the you know 80s or the 90s or something yeah. and, and you're just kind of stuck in that sound uh your your tracks just don't sound modern enough and you know you have to educate yourself you have to listen to what people are using today and, and you know, honestly, listen to what you're doing and compare them to see if you know if you're on the on the right page. Uh, let's take some questions from the audience. We've got 11 minutes to go. I've exhausted the questions that came in before the show. Okay. Uh, and while I'm waiting for something to pop up, I am going to plug the book again because I know that um, again I have gone cover to cover on this book, even though I am. On a scale of one to ten, I'm about a 1.5 uh, reader of music, and I still found this book to be incredibly valuable. Not to mention the fact that anybody who owns this book would tell you they would never give up their copy. That it's a must-have if you're going to create music for te television in particular. So um, just know that uh, he is a better writer than he thought he was in the beginning, and he's done a damn fine job. <laughs> All right, here's a question from Robert Else, which is, what's Steve's most successful genre? Oh, dramedy by far. Okay, and dramedy is like Desperate Housewives. Do, 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 do. Mischievous. Yep, <laughs> mischievous, sneaky, something's around the corner. We're, you know. Uh, Mike Sass wants to know Is there any benefit to using a company name for your music as opposed to your real name? I was thinking, he says, I was thinking in terms of branding. Um, so, 
I, I would think that you'd use your name. You are the brand. Well, you're not featured. It, you know, for production music, your name is not going to be in the credits. So uh, I don't see any any real value in that. Okay. Uh, other than if you use a company name, let's say there's an industry event at. Uh, whatever you know and there's like 50 publishers in the room an mpaa meeting or whatever it's called um and you've got 10 publishers per table and somebody says oh yeah steve barden's been one of my go-to composers for years that way your name is the brand if it was like ishpeming music they may not remember it it doesn't roll off the tongue it's not good branding whereas steve barden and they could see your name if they look at other libraries online. They go, wow, this guy's got stuff in a lot of key libraries. He must be good. It may cause them to reach out to you and say, Steve, could you do an entire project for me? Um, let's see. Question for think if you, Go ahead. I would, I would just think that if, if you were re, if you re, sort of represented your music as a company, I would think that, that people would kind of consider that as, well, maybe you have, um, you're not really the writer. You have a lot of people writing under you. Which, if you don't, is a problem. Yeah. So, I don't right. know. You create a bigger footprint than is actually the size of your shoe. Um, <laughs> right. um, this is a question from Andre Stepanian. Uh, when a listing says very high bar, which other extra points are you paying attention to? Whoops. Scrolled off the page there. Got to get back to it. Um, okay. When a, when a listing says very high bar, which other extra points are you paying attention to in your track than just what would typically be? Uh, and do you make sure your MIDI instruments sound real? Boy, it, every single thing has to be top notch. The composition, the quality of the instruments, the mixing and mastering, the audio, you know, the, the end product, uh, and that it matches the, the brief. It's, it's exactly what they're looking for. So, you know, you can't go, uh, you know, this is a great rock song, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to put that um, kazoo in there because that's that's what I do. <laughs> you know, it's, it's got to match exactly, you know, what they're looking for, you know, and everything's got to be top notch. And Andre, I, I want to elaborate a little bit because honestly, 99% uh, of listings that go out through Taxi cross my desk and I actually look at every one of them, maybe 100% actually. And I see the ones that say very high bar. And there are times where I will actually take that out probably to the consternation of my staff because I don't want people to think that everything isn't high bar. They are, you made that point, everything is high bar. There are no, well, B plus is good enough libraries out there. At least you wouldn't want to be signed to them. So, but the reason that we do put it in sometimes is to let people know that the screeners are looking for magic. It's that indescribable thing, you know, like if it's for a TV commercial. Um, we just don't want people to be disappointed. And, and the other reason it's in there is sometimes libraries will insist, can you please include the phrase very high bar? I only want to get the best of the best. Well, that's of course all we ever send anyway. We don't send B plus. We send A, we send A plus. We delight in A plus. So just so you know, um, Everything is high bar. Just uh, some people ask us to push that, and I don't think that their bar is really any different than the library before them. 
a couple more questions here. We've still got six minutes left. Um, Pat Wara wants to know, what do you use as reference, reference tracks for your cues? Um, I, you know, I don't submit to taxi listings a lot, but I do look at them, you know, just because I don't have a lot of time. I do look at them often, and if there's genres that, um, that I'm interested in, um, I make note uh, of the uh, reference, references that are put in the listings. And I use those to kind of keep up with the kind of sounds that they're looking for, just so you know I'm up to date and stuff. So if they're YouTube links, I'll, I'll create playlists, private playlists, you know, and just you know uh, categorize them that way. I'm, I'm always flattered when Robin Frederick people ask her, "How do you stay current on what you listen to?" She goes, "I look at the references and the taxi listings." And everybody should know that we have over the last 18 months to two years pushed our companies requesting music, we've pushed them a lot harder to really think about their references and give us at least one solid reference that they are absolutely sure is what they're looking for. In the past, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, give me something like that. And then we send them music and they go, well, that's not really what I was looking for. Oh, really? Look at the email you sent us. You said, find me something like that. So we want them to think long and hard when they reference that, that that's really what they want. And we try to get a couple, if not three, references out of them. Um, and if they don't give us three, we will take the one or two they give us and then augment that with extra stuff. Uh, let's take uh, got a couple more minutes here. Uh, we, gotta give, we have to give away a book. Oh, that's right. Um, we will do that. Don't let me forget. Um, Dog and Pony Productions asks, does HQ need to be registered with your BMI or ASCAP uh, for you to get your royalties? Yes, but don't do it yourself. Your publisher will will uh, register those with the proper uh, PRO. Um, let's see. Lauren Principato says, I want the book. Buy the book. Easily had for cash dollars. Uh, Marion Laird says, I love the first book. I think every, not to discount your thoughts or feelings, Marion, but everybody loves that book. It is an extremely well-written book, very comprehensive, and I've never heard anything but compliments about it. Um, do you? This question is from Michael Lehman. Do you have a recommendation for suitable first orchestral sound library for orchestral-based trailers? Uh, well, there's many, and it kind of depends on your budget, I guess. Uh, but again, I mean, look at, um, you know what? Go up to um, get on the form at VI control, VI dash control, and uh, you, you can see what people are, are, are recommending. It's, it's a really useful uh, uh, site for composers. That's a great suggestion. Um, should you register a direct to supervisor track with your PRO? So if you're not submitting to a library, but you're submitting to a taxi listing that says that we've got a bunch of them right now where a particular music supervisor that um, is doing, I think, a range of seven or eight or nine different genres with us, should you register that stuff with your PRO uh, before you submit it or as soon as you submit it? No, I would wait until you're signed. If, if they say they want to use it and you will maintain the 
uh, publishing on it, then you can do it. But I, I, I wouldn't go ahead because if, if that deal falls through, uh, you still want to be able to submit it somewhere else and you might end up giving up the publishing somewhere else. Right. And so they're going to, they could retitle it when a library picks up. If it doesn't get picked up by the supervisor and the library signs it after the fact, um, they could retitle it. They would want to re-register it, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. The minute somebody says, we love this piece of music, we're going to use it in the show, hang up the phone or close your email and go register it then. Exactly. Uh, uh, Troy Cummings asks, is there a preferred musical structure in any given queue? Taxi feedback was, this should start more simple and build more going into a more dramatic ending. This starts big and gets softer. So it sounds like Troy's piece of music was judged by a, a taxi screener. His thing started big and got softer. He's asking, should it start smaller and get bigger? So he did the reverse ABA. Right. <laughs> There you go, a new phrase in the world of music, the reverse, ABA. I think that's a gymnastic term <laughs> with a triple layup <laughs> on top of it. Um, all right, so we got a minute here. Let's give away a book, and how we're going to do it is don't start typing anything yet. Wait until you see my hand do the, the, the downbeat there, and you guys sure. are going to type a plus one and uh, Liz is going to run her finger up and down. You know what? I'm going to ask Steve to do it. Steve, run, you, can you see the chat? <clears throat> I, I, I can, yeah. There's a little bit of a delay, but uh, I'll find something. Okay, so Steve's going to shut his eyes, run his finger up and down, go boom, and wherever he lands is who gets a free copy of Deconstructing, Deconstructing Production Music for TV. And go. Plus one. They're just starting to come in. Yep. Wow. Wow, there's a lot of them. And feel free to scroll up or down, so, you know, the, the list. Anything well, when you, you say can... stop, then I'm going to scroll up and just randomly point to one. All right. I'm, I'm going to let them keep going because they will stop on their own. <laughs> they will have their they they will have their own button ending. And people, don't don't put your name in there twice. That's cheesy. I'm judging you, damn it. <laughs> uh -huh. It's amazing what people will do for a free book. All right, looks like about, they're pretty much three times. Can you put three times? Oh. No. <laughs> Whoa, here they come again. Uh, all right, I would say that everybody who is going to do a plus one now, come on, I've seen some people that I know well that have had their name in there like four times. Um, go ahead, shut your eyes, scroll up, and pick a winner, chicken dinner. Uh, okay, I'm just going to randomly... Uh... I got Charles Robish, Robichaud. Robichaud. Yep. Yep. Uh, Charles, are you in the United States? I hope. <coughs> um, the reason I ask is on occasion we have winners from Europe and it gets more expensive than the actual book is to send it to Europe. Uh, Charles, please respond if you are in fact in the United States. Yes. Yes. Okay. So Liz has your information. Um, Steve and Liz, can you guys coordinate and uh, 
Steve, you can send a book here. We'll send it out, or you can send it from your house, or I, we can. How I'll do we just do send that? it. I'll just send it directly. Yeah, Charles, do you want me to sign it? Oh yeah. Draw a cartoon inside of a musician. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign Kevin Kiner. I hope that's okay. <laughs> there you go. Great. So, uh, Charles, if you would be so kind as to send Liz at taxi.com your address, she will forward it on to Steve and he will send you an autographed version to Michael. All the best. Oh, no, yours will say to Charles all the best. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to cross that out, Michael. And just we could. I've, I've done that on occasion. You've where done we, that. We, where we've had, well, I didn't cross it out, but we've had winners and we realized that I didn't have like an extra copy of Dean's book or somebody's book. And I've actually taken the one that whoever, it could have been you, it could have been Dean, and sent them my mine with a post-it note apology saying, I hope you don't mind the fact that it says to Michael. <laughs> I'm a class act, what can I say? Yep, well, con con yep, congratulations on this book. Um, Thank you. Just the stuff on the left-hand page. Well, it's not always on the left-hand page, but, you know, the breakdowns of what you used, if people listen, they're going to learn so much from this. Um, and uh, I'm sure I'll have you involved in one way uh, or another with the road rally. We're still waiting. to. Tomorrow is the day the hotel finds out from the state what the parameters are and if we can have a road rally in person and if and if we can are there going to be so many rules that it would make it impossibly hard to keep everybody safe so by the end of this week i should have a determination if we're doing it virtually or or, um, or live and in any case uh steve has been a valuable asset to the road rallies many times thank you so much for taking the time to do this i know you've got a busy schedule and uh good to see your face my friend uh, I, I, I'm always grateful that you take the time and uh, look at us, dude. We survived COVID. Here we are a year and a yeah. couple of months later and uh, we're still alive and kicking. So yay us. Yay, everybody. Yay. Thank you all for watching the big show. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Steve Barton. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Here, play along with. Uh, okay. All right. You ready? Yeah, I don't know if he's in. I have no idea. There you go. You and Keith, you're like the Almond Brothers. <laughs> yeah, but he's got an amplifier. Okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. Take care, buddy. Thanks, Michael.